This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to another episode of Tide Chasers. Once again, we'd like to thank everyone for listening and supporting us on this project. Now, if you're new to the podcast, please make sure you guys subscribe, like, and share us on one of your favorite platforms. Also, if you can, please make sure you leave us a review on those platforms. It helps us out a lot. As always, I'm going to like to introduce you to my co-host, Dan. How you doing, Dan? I'm doing great, man. Glad to be here with Brian. Thank you. All right. Now, as you know, spring is finally here and in full swing, and our back bay waters are just starting to come to life. Now, our guest today has been fishing these waters for a very long time and has even made a career out of it. When you want to know everything about a certain area, you got to talk to the best. And this man is considered one of the best in our area. I'm honored to introduce you, Captain Brian Williams of Batfish Charters out of Ocean State, New Jersey. How you doing, Cap? Hey, how's it going, guys? A beautiful Welcome, day Brian. here. All right. Not bad at all. It is a gorgeous day. So it's weather's starting to change. Weather's warming up. Fish is going to pick up. So let's uh, let's just kick it off from here. Uh, let's start with your backstory and how you got into fishing. You know, your influences and how Batfish Charters came to be. Got it. Well, I was uh, born and raised here in Southern New Jersey. Um, as a kid, weekends were spent in the saltwater. Um, had some family, owned some boats. Uh, my parents owned more of a cabin cruiser. And then my grandparents, they owned uh, more of a fishing boat. And uh, my great grandparents, they did quite a bit of fishing as well. And uh, pretty much from there, weekdays after school were spent fishing the freshwater and pretty much all summer rowing around a little John boat in a small lake down the road from my house. Um, from there, naturally transitioned over and got a little older. Uh, started fishing more and more of the saltwater, and uh, yeah, that's where I ended up today. <laughs> and um, how long ago did you start Batfish Charters? I started that around going on about 2015 now, I want to say, 2014, mm-hmm. um, somewhere in there. Uh, prior to that, I was running trips for a buddy of mine. Uh, actually, it was uh, right as I was about to get my captain's license, he picked up boat and said, hey, want to help out running some charters? So I spent a couple years doing that. Um, from there, you know, naturally, just the evolution of it dictated, go off and do it on your own. Okay. Um, have you regretted being a full-time captain now, or do you not regret <laughs> it? Have you thought about beginning? You know, have you ever thought about, have you ever thought about saying, what if I would have got a regular job instead of being a captain? Uh, I've never known a regular job, I guess is a way to put it. Um, gotcha. You know, as a kid, yeah, pretty much from my teens on, 
Uh, I tried a couple of those regular jobs, worked at a Wendy's for a minute, actually worked at a Kmart for a minute. Uh, and I was in my, I want to say early teens up until about when I started driving a little after that. And I started working in a surf shop and it was all downhill from there. So from there on, just trying to do nothing but work on the water. Gotcha. I mean, we can't, we can't complain about a life like that, being on the water and do what we love best, right? Yep. I always say you want to figure out what you want to do for a living, do what you'd be doing on your day off. <laughs> That's nice. Nice. I, can, I, can, I couldn't even <laughs> thought about that one. That's a good one. I like that. That might be the quote for the flyer. But all right, well, let's see. Uh, when do you typically start your season? Uh, normally, well, the last two years, because I wasn't guiding in Florida, uh, uh, just to kind of preface that, uh, last eight years, nine years or so, I've been guiding down in Southwest Florida mm-hmm. uh, during the winter months. So that's kind of put me back up here more or less in middle of April. Uh, but the last two years, I've stuck it out here uh, with everything going on in the world, and, you know, limiting travel and all that. Yeah. Uh, so normally I'd get it going around the second week of March and just you know, hit the ground running from there and don't stop until close to New Year's. Wow. That's that's all. That's a long season. You go longer than a lot of most of these uh, captains out here all the way to almost Christmas. As long as the fish are still chewing in the backwater, that is. Um, now that's transition. More or less October, mid-October on, used to be an ocean fishery around here uh, for right. striped bass or bluefish, what have you out there. Um, but a lot of that's changed. Uh, so now, as long as the water temps stay up, uh, we had to hit those bass in the backwaters into sometime in December. In the last couple of years, we really haven't had any of that ice off or anything like that or ice over. Mm-hmm. until uh really after new year's if at all you know it cool. stayed relatively warm so usually what type of charters um do you run and available target species throughout the season say since we're in spring now then once summer converts and fall and so forth well this time of year mainly striped bass in the backwater um, there's always that option for some tog in the backwater now that we've got some water temps that are up again um, yeah water is coming in now in the ocean 48 uh, as you creep into the inlet, that'll warm up closer to 50. And then when you get deeper into backcountry right now, you're almost looking at 60 degrees in some spots. Actually, after a day like today, I reckon it'll probably be up around 61, 62, even on some of the flats. And, and, uh, so and that'll, what, that'll and set you up for some of those tog. Um, after that, uh, once flounder opens up right around, you know, that's typically the last week of May this year. It's May 22nd, I believe. Yeah. Uh, from there on, mostly a lot of flounder trips. Um, but there's always the option for striped bass uh, during that time as well. Uh, typically, once flounder opens, I find that the striper, they kind of get a little little spooked. Just all those flounder boats running around in the bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of shuts them down and then couple that with the fact that the water's warming. So they tend to become more exclusively nocturnal or you know, first light, last light kind of situation. Um, so pretty much through most of the summer in the bay, it's flounder by day, striper by night. Um, mix it up with some other species too. It really just depends on the vibe of my clients, what they're into, some of their angling experience, things like that. Might transition over, maybe go look for some sheep's head. Um, if there's bluefish around, maybe go try and hit some bluefish uh, on some of the flats if they're still sticking around. But that's kind of been few and far between the last couple of years. Um, from there, if it's a calm day in the ocean, the last couple of years, by about mid-July, mid-late July, um, we've had a good push of sharks out off the beach, which makes for some fun action. You know, you can sight fish some of them, pitch chunks of bunker to some of them or live line bunker for them. And then there's also been the addition of the cobia out there as well, uh, right around July and August. 
Um, and then of course the re- wreck and reef fishing for sea bass, flounder, things like that when it calls for it out there, uh, depending on the conditions. Um, and then as we get into September, uh, more or less uh, start transitioning over again. Summer crowds have left, so I'm putting a lot of emphasis on uh, trying to get back to looking for some striper, assuming the water temps have dropped a little bit, uh, so the fish are, are a little more friendly to release. Um, from there, more tog, things like that, once we get into late September, October. Um, and then from there, pretty much just stick it out with striper and tog. Uh, hopefully, if we get lucky in October, depending on the year, we might get a good push of albies. We'll go out looking for them as well. Um, and then that follows into November, December. It's pretty much just striped bass in the backwater or as those waters cool in mid-November. So we'll look out front for some tog as well. But by that point, usually mid-November, the tog have shut down in the back bay. And by then it's New Year's and getting ready to start it all over again for another year. You're staying super busy out there. You uh, So rewind a little bit we you and i have talked about sheep's head uh, on instagram back and forth a little bit and how you uh, are super con- conservative with them do you have you seen a lot of people uh requesting those kind of trips more more so lately than than in the last like this this five years compared to the previous five years you get a more uptick in, in interest i'd say so yeah some people uh, more inquiring because they're curious um they've heard about it there's a little bit of mystique around it. Some of them have been fishing for a very long time and still have never caught one. Can't quite dial it in. Um, so I am getting some of those trips, uh, people asking for them. Um, they're, they're a difficult fish some days to just go out and try to target. Uh, it really just it depends on a few conditions. Um, you know, Sometimes we could get a blowout, some really nasty water comes in or a temperature fluctuation, things like that. And the sheep's head might shut down for a couple of days. Um, I try my best with trips to always be able to adapt and evolve to the situation. And sometimes that means you can't just target one species. You right. know, you've got to go out with the cards that are dealt that day and shift over to something else. Or you're out there with the idea, hey, you know, it's, it's, you know, the client really wants to catch something. And as you're pulling out in the bay, all of a sudden, a totally different species is jumping out of the water, smashing into the side of the boat as you idle by them. So it's like, hey, guys, let's switch gears and try this for a little while. Yeah, I know when I go out after sheep's head, I always bring my fluke rod too, just so I'm prepared to to have a switch or something myself. So we're we're big sheep's head fans here. If you if you haven't noticed, that me and me Qua and a couple of our other buddies, we love them. So yeah, they're a fun fight, especially in the middle of summer. Yeah, man. Um, you know, they behave a lot like a striper that's about maybe three times the weight does around a lot of the structure that we're fishing for them. Sometimes, in fact, you can mix the two up easily when you're fighting them you can't always tell the difference right and a lot of those spots as bycatch you are catching some of those resident striper uh some of the larger models that are hanging around some of that structure you've gotten into some pretty big sheep's head i've seen in the past is your biggest what's the biggest on your boat i want to ballpark around 16 pounds or so um somewhere in there um, uh, tell you the truth uh, most every sheep's head in our areas coming in around 10 pounds or better. Um, yeah. I haven't seen many, maybe it's just some of the areas I'm fishing, but I haven't seen many small ones. Um, gotcha. so it's, it, it's hard to really say if many are around, 
uh, I've heard some areas, not in my immediate area that I fish, but some other areas north and south of here, um, there are some smaller sheep's head guys are catching. Um, for whatever reason, maybe it's just size hook I'm using or something, just the spots. I don't know. No, something different about it. Yeah, I think we're seeing like a we over time we've seen a smaller class of fish more south, like the two to five pound fish. We've seen more of those uh, than the bigger fish as of late. Um, we're getting a couple of the big fish sprinkled in, but we're seeing more of the, that smaller, medium sized class of fish right now. Maybe it's possible in the migration that the most northern reaches see the largest. So maybe those fish that we were seeing a few years back that were on the larger side around here have slid north 100 miles. You never know. Yeah, It's possible. Yeah. And then everything else is just slightly smaller than them. There's not a lot that's known about the sheep's head movements in our area. Um, that's why I made it a point. I, I probably stuck probably close to 15 of them now, I believe, uh, with some tags. And I'm hoping for some better tag returns just to kind of understand their movements. Um, I haven't done, I don't think I tagged any last year, but the previous years I was tagging a few. Um, and so far, two tag returns. One of them was caught 50 feet away from where I caught him. And I know this because a friend, a friend of mine caught him. And so he told me where he caught him. Um, and that was two months later. Wow. Another one of the tag returns was caught by another friend of mine. And he, that fish had swam about a mile and a half in three months and then was caught again. So they don't move super far. <laughs> no, which is exactly the behavior I see down south in them, just from the years of guiding down in southwest Florida. Um, down there, just to give you an idea, um, you know, one time I hooked the sheep's head down there, and usually we're using uh, small hooks. Uh, so, uh, you know, small hooks with shrimp uh, down there, it's just typical for what we do. And uh, had to leave the hook in the fish. It was just bent, mangled. I was going to do more damage to the fish by uh, trying to pull that hook out, but it was kind of mm -hmm. stuck right in his jaw. A week later, we hooked that exact same sheep's head on that exact same piling of the dock, not even a piling left or right, the exact same piling a week later. And he had the hook hanging out of his mouth. By then I was able to work the hook out what was left of it. So they don't want to move far. Once they pick a spot, that's where they hold until there's some kind of environmental change, temperature shift or season, things like that. That's, that's just another piece of the puzzle there. That's great information. Cause we, we are often curious about you know, how these fish are moving around and migrating and stuff. So that's great information. We'd love to get into tagging them ourselves. So that's something we might talk to you about off, off air here to, to how it gets set up with doing that. Cause we love those fish. We want to see them more of them around. We kind of want to see how they're, uh, how they're operating when we're not feeding them. Yeah, no, I think that's huge is, is we got to get some tags in them to figure out where they're moving. Cause we need to answer a lot of these questions before we start walking down that road of, uh, should we or shouldn't we be harvesting them? Right. Um, because for all we know, these fish might be residents to the area in the sense that they might, might migrate east to west right. and not go north to south as much as people might think. Uh, in that case, it's very easy to fish out an area. I mean, just knowing in a couple months, just during the summer span, they don't really move. Then you know if there's a set amount of sheep's head hanging around a particular structure spot then that, that fixed number of sheep's head probably isn't going to change through the summer. So if you removed, if there was 10 there and you removed eight of them, there's only two left. So it's very possible that we could put a dent in our own sheep's head population before we even understand their movements otherwise. Uh, um, so I'm sure. hoping, hoping the states step up and start putting regulations in place in, in our area and other areas to the north. 
Yeah, I was thinking that too because five, six years ago when we were we were still targeting them. I mean, you can go out in a day and bolt five, six, seven over ten pounds easily without even a thought about it. Now I go out every other day and we'll pick up. You no, know, we get lucky. We'll pick up two or three, and then two or three are like four or five pounders. I mean, you may be right. Maybe the bigger ones are migrating up, but then like the frequency of the big ones that we've seen, you know, are far less now. Um, yeah, I, I ordered tags for this year. I w I'm not sure what tags you use because you always have a preference of tags. Um, I think I read, read somewhere you wrote that you like the gray tags more than the yellow ones because with the yellow ones, they get a loop and they get stuck in like pilings and stuff like that. So I ordered a, a, a set of gray tags this year to get to try tag like the, the double digit ones and see if, if we get any more info for them. Yeah, no, that would be huge. Um, I, I started off with the, uh, the littoral society's mm -hmm. loop tag. Yeah. Um, not a huge fan of the, the tag itself because it's a loop. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you that, that the fish that were recaught with those, you know, I saw the photo and it looked okay on there. You okay. know, my only concern is whenever you're putting a loop around something near structure, especially a fish that basically rubs on structure for mm -hmm. a living, um, that's it's probably not a good combination. That's why a, a straight tag would be more preferred. I've since heard that the ALS did come out with a straight tag now. I haven't picked them up yet. Um, like I said, it's been a little while since I've tagged many of them, um, just kind of fell out of the habit of it for a little bit there. Uh, so see what comes of it later. Yeah. I'm just waiting for my tags to come in. So see what they look like. Yeah. I'd All really right. like to know what happens down the road with the sheep's head, you know, as far as where they're going to long-term, like a fish I tag mm -hmm. here, where is he three years later? Um, cause a lot of these sheep's head, people don't realize the age of them. They're very old fish uh, yeah. based on yeah. some of the studies I looked into around right around year 10, roughly that 20 inch mark, they virtually stop growing. Um, they start growing at an increment of like a half an inch a year, something like that. Like it really slows down a lot. So that means some of the higher end of what we're catching for sheep's head are over 30 years old. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, those fish. Yeah, I think I read, I did some research myself. I think fifth, a 14, 15 pound fish is way over 20 years old, 20, 25 ish. So, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. We're seeing all these, uh, these big fish on stringers. And, uh, I think we, we definitely support, uh, stricter regulations, some regulations at the very least, and then some, some stricter regulations in place to, to kind of keep that fishery growing in our waters. Now I kind of I kind of took your uh, your steam there, Qua, about the uh, spring striper fishery here in our local water. So I'll hand that back over to you. I just had to talk sheep's head with my man here. It's okay. I still we still, we, we still got some time. Uh, the more the merrier, you know what I mean. So the uh, the only other question I had was, um, you fish our backwaters a lot, and I, I'm not sure if you fish our the northern waters, but um, what makes our backyard a little bit so more sm much special and more productive than the northern back bays, like say Barnegat, those kind of backwaters just different estuaries. Um, you know, as you go further South in New Jersey, um, it's more of a, a lot more shallow. Um, a lot of our waters, even just the near shore waters along the beach, it's more estuarian water than it is oceanic water. Um, it's not even shelf water. It's pretty much just the runoff coming out of the rivers, coming out of the bay that, that hangs out and lingers along the beachfront. And that's extremely evident this time of year when you start to notice the changes in the water temperatures. Uh, that's why the water's right, uh, you know, you go three, four miles out in the ocean, the water can be five degrees colder than the water right on the beachfront um, this time of year, uh, just because a lot of our water falls out and just hangs out out there. Uh, as opposed to up north, they see more ocean 
oceanic water coming in and kind of touching along the coast and going into their bays. Um, so I, I just think in the spring, especially, you don't see the same volume of spawning fish moving into those areas that you see down here. I mean, if you look, you've got the Mulligan River, you've got the Great Egg Harbor River, you've got the Delaware River. They're kind of all lining up all in the same general area. And I think that plays a part in why we see these fish setting up the way they do down here. Sure. That's a great answer. I didn't even think about all that when I look at these waters in our waterways. But, look uh, at the sea surface temperatures. It, uh, you know, next chance you get, pull them up along the coast and kind of follow them over the next couple of weeks. You'll mm-hmm. see some of that. It'll it'll kind of show that to you. That's how I figured it out. Gotcha. <laughs> all right. So usually on a typical day on the water with batfish charters, um, like what do the clients bring? Say a new family just booked with you and then like they they're, they're scheduled to hop on the boat. Um, like what's a typical day like? Uh, what should they bring? What's, what do you usually supply? Uh, are, are your chips all friendly, uh, family friendly? And typically, when's the best time to book and your current availability as of right now? Well, um, as far as what you bring, pretty much just yourself. Dress for the weather, the conditions. Um, you know, we're just about to get into that season. <coughs> pretty soon, that'll start ramping up. So in that case, definitely wear something longer sleeves longer pants, um, something to cover up with. Um, sometimes they're so thick, you even need gloves. Um, as far as uh, family friendly, I take all ages out. I mean, just the other day we had two kids on the boat. They had never really casted before and they were still able to actually the combined total between the two kids, they caught more striper than their dad did. Um, <laughs> but typically this time of year, it's more catering to the more technical angler, um, just the more avid angler that's that's sort of able to cast uh, and things like that. But I can work with all ability levels. As we transition in the summer, um, doing more bottom fishing and things like that, that's a lot easier for your typical family where not everybody has fished all their life. Um, you know, for the most part, they'll, they'll just drop it down to the bottom and jig it along. Um, and it allows for a lot of action. So typically in the summer is probably the best time to come with a family, especially if they haven't fished much. Uh, and what was the next question after that? Um, well, well you, you just answered typically the best time to book. And what are your current availabilities within just say the next few weeks or months? Uh, the next few weeks, I'm looking pretty open. Uh, I do have, I want to say maybe two to three days out of the week still available. Okay. Um, after that, some of the prime dates are starting to book up. Um, you know, you pick your key dates, especially weekends in May. Uh, most of them have filled in already. Um, some of the weekdays are open. And then from there, you know, looking a couple months out, uh, I want to say about half of the summer is already filled in. So if you had a prime date to try to pick, I'd say try to get in with me now uh, so you can get that date, at least have a choice of a couple days there at least. Yeah, once those tours start pouring in, you know when that's, your schedule starts filling up, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. A lot of times in the summer, I see a lot of calls for last minute trips. Um, typically, everybody comes into town on a Saturday mm-hmm. and then by Sunday, they, they find the phone number and then give you a call and they try to line it up for that week. And then typically they're out of here by that Friday or that Saturday of the following week. Um, so you do see a lot of last minute trips come summer. Um, this time of year, some guys try to hold off to last minute and wait on the weather. Um, other guys they get me weeks in advance, months in advance. Some guys, a couple trips I have set up, they, they lined it up with me when they had a trip last season and then just wanted to line up a similar date this year. 
well, I should say, I'm sorry, last year, we didn't do many trips. We were kind of shut out by that whole thing going on in the world yeah. there until about middle of May, um, but other years prior. Cool. All right. Well, now let's, let's break into our spring striper fisher here in our local waters. Um, all right. We'll start with the first sub tackle lures. Well, we'll get into flies a little bit, but yeah, tackle lures, fly and bait. I know you did a little, like a little section in on the water magazine that covers a lot of this. If you guys haven't already checked it out, just make sure you guys take a peek at the, uh, I think it's this month's edition of Underwater Magazine. Um, Brian did a little section in there that kind of breaks down this our spring fishery, but we're gonna we're gonna go a little, dig a little deeper here on this section. So once again, tackle lures, flies, and bait this time of year. Uh, typically, this time of year, it pretty much follows with what I'm fishing most of the year. I mean, as far as tackle goes, um, it's going to be around a 2,500 class reel. Um, 3000 would cut it too, but we don't really need the extra line capacity and you're not getting any extra pickup out of it on most models. Uh, so it really doesn't make much difference. Um, and then with a rod, usually I, I, the sweet spots, a rod rated around five eighth ounce to three quarter ounce. Uh, if you were to pick one all around rod that you can fish all year with, uh, including this time of year, that would be the rod, usually around a seven foot rod. Um, as far as lures go, for the most part, uh, it's soft plastics. Um, generally speaking, some of the fish will hit top water, but we're not quite there yet uh, where it's a consistent top water bite. So for the most part, everything's subsurface. And usually if I'm fishing something subsurface, I'm trying to go with that single hook. It's just a lot more fish friendly. And some of these fish being deeper down because we're still getting them in some of the channels. Um, usually that delivery system, you need it to be a jig. It'll just get down to the bottom quicker. There's not many lures that'll dive to 15 to 20 feet easily or get right below the boat when you have to drop it down there. Um, usually around a five and a half inch jerk shad, uh, if I'm jigging in the channels, if I'm up on the flats, it's usually the three inch DOA shad. Uh, it's just a little paddle tail, uh, store, sort of looks like a storm shad just on a jig head. Um, and then as far as flies go, Normally, if I'm fishing in the deeper water, I'm trying to throw a, a relatively larger uh, deceiver style, usually around seven to eight inches. Uh, and that just allows them to find it better, I find. Um, those fish that are schooled up, I don't think it's as huge to play a match the hatch game, so to speak, as much as it is just get it down there and sort of call them in from a distance because they could be a few feet away from that. And if you have something that's displacing a little more water down there, not something giant, it's, you know, I'm not saying go, everybody go throw a 12 inch sluggos. Um, but it's just, if you're able to displace that little more water, they'll sometimes key in on it from a distance. Um, when we're up on the flats, it's pretty much the standard. I mean, to fish when you're on the flats and you're in three feet of water, the bottom, the surface and the middle are all basically the same thing. Because when he looks at that, it's in his line of sight, no matter how you cut it. Um, that's a little different, though, when you're in 20 feet of water and the fish is 10 foot over from where your jig is. He might not see it otherwise. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So right now with the with the stripers, they're just waking up. What are, what are their natural foods that they're currently feeding on right now? What are they looking for usually? Grass shrimp. That's the most important food source in the bay. It's the lifeblood of the bay for just about everything that swims out there. Um, I always say when times are tough, that's when all the fish in the bay eat grass shrimp. Um, and by times are tough, I just mean when it's colder, when there isn't a presence of a lot of food sources. I mean, don't get me wrong. We see bunker and even some peanut bunker in the bay all winter these days, the last few years, it seems. Um, but generally the easiest meal for them to find is going to be grass shrimp because they're 
on every side bank. And if they're able to push a school of them away from it a little, then it might be out a few feet off the bank as well. Um, second to that, I would say would be crabs. Um, that's also another easy food source that's sort of always around, um, depending on the time of year and what crabs might be stuck in the mud or not. and might be out and moving around a little bit. Um, from there, it would just become your fin fish. So from there, it would be your bunker. Um, possibly your herring if they're moving up the rivers. Um, you know, we haven't seen a large presence of herring over the last few years. It's not historically how it used to be. Um, but the bunker are always around. Um, a great example of that, although I'm fishing, a, I was fishing the five and a half inch jerk shad and I was jigging up some bass that were right around that, I want to say, you know, 20 inch mark, somewhere around that. The other day I was out myself. I looked behind the boat. Uh, sun was setting in the background. I looked behind the boat and I see a bunker just acting weird on the surface he was stunned he kept swimming in circles watched him a little more uh then all of a sudden i watched a boil come up behind him and heard a little crack and the fish had missed him um so i decided to take uh, at the time uh take my jerk shad that i had on which doesn't really match a, you know a larger bunker you're looking at a 12 inch bunker against a five inch jerk shad um went and casted that behind him took about seven shots uh before i could really get it in front of those fish um, ended up tying into a nicer bass. Uh, he wasn't small. He was, he was a bigger model. Um, when he came up and rolled over, when he ate it, there was about three other fish right behind him that were all on the larger side, kind of rolled over with them. Uh, he decided to take half of my spool off my reel and then he popped off. I'm assuming he just twisted the hook out when he rolled over on the initial strike. Um, but that's just an example right there of something that doesn't match what they're eating whatsoever. But when presented to them, when that feeding catalyst is put in place, they'll hit it no matter what. It's kind of a race to which one of them is going to eat whatever it is in front of them as quick as possible. Um, so at that case, though, the bunker was on the menu that night, apparently. Um, and so we're starting to see more and more of those bunker around. Actually, as we were speaking earlier, I did see an osprey dive on a bunker here, uh, right where I'm sitting right now along the bank of the backwaters here. All right. Well, so I, we're assuming that, like you're saying, bass are optimistic feeders if you doesn't matter what they're feeding on but you throw something in their face and it, it, it moves just the right way they're going to snatch at it yep especially if there's multiple fish in the area if there's one fish i'll sometimes look at it with educated eyes mm -hmm. but if you can put that feeding instinct into them then it, it's basically a race for which one of them is going to eat it first and then usually once you can activate one of them you'll find that the next cast will hook another or at least entice a hit out of it and sometimes that can be multiple casts until you've pulled those fish away from that spot you were fishing. Uh, a lot of times, once you displace those fish in the current, they'll sometimes move away to the next feeding station. Um, I especially notice that with sheep's head. Uh, a lot of times if you're in fast moving water and you hook one and there's like 10 that follow them up, you'll drop back down and you won't get a touch and wonder why. And that's because you displaced all of those fish. They're now out in the current and essentially got dragged down and they're going to move to the next feeding station. They don't want to fight that current to go back in place where they were hanging at. But the same thing goes with those striper. I find um, if you displace too many of them, they just move on to the next feeding station. That's a good information. I never even thought about that one. If you pull too many fish out. I mean, I guess that's assumed the same thing they do down South with the, uh, the redfish. They try to pick one or two fish off that school and then that's about it and they'll move on to somewhere else because if they keep picking the same more fish off that one school it's going to disperse the whole school and then the whole school is just going to flee all right um 
And with this year, this with the spring, uh, what type of structures, water type tides and temps are you looking for? Um, like you said, you said a little bit earlier about 20 feet, sometimes 15 feet. So if the water temperature, say you said the other day you saw it was about 60 ish. Is that still, is it still too cold for them to be up, up, up in shallow water or they still went down deep? Uh, not at all. Um, a way to put that in perspective is you could go out in the middle of January and February and still find striper in a foot of water. Um, it's just a matter of the relationship of the temps on that flat as opposed to the channels. So let's say in January or February when it's really cold out, it's winter. If you get a warm day and that sun's shining, they're going to go up onto those mud flats to get warm. That's like a little hot tub for them. Um, but generally speaking, when you transition from spring into later spring, like we're looking at now, uh, what's going to happen is the fish themselves as a mass are going to start to move. Those striper aren't going to want to stay in those channels much longer. Um, we're going to start to see those fish moving up more onto those flats because there's more food sources up there now for them. You're going to start to see more grass shrimp moving around. You're going to start to see the mud minnows and things like that moving around more. Um, and that's going to cause the bulk of those fish to want to slide up into those flats. And you just won't see them anymore in those channels in the same way you see them now. Um, also, a lot of these fish are going to move a little further into the back and kind of set up for their spawn. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it, too. Um, right now, these fish are mostly staged in the channels and the ones that are going up on the flats are only doing it for a temporary period of time. They're either going up there to get a little warmer or they're going up there to feed for a minute. And then they're going to head back down with their friends and go back into the channels. Um, sort of a social behavior, I guess, the way they'll hang out together in a group. Um, but we're starting to see the fish sliding up the rivers now and beginning to start to see them uh, starting to exhibit some spawning behaviors. Um, so once we see that, we'll actually lose the fish for about a week where the bulk of them will just disappear. It'll feel like they disappeared in the thin air. So unless you go up to specifically where they're going to be spawning at, I don't really recommend disturbing them while they're doing that these days. Um, you'll notice all of a sudden your numbers of fish will drop, you know, where you were catching dozen plus in a trip, maybe even a lot more, you know, good day, whatever, maybe catch 50, 60 of them. Uh, you'll suddenly notice that you're only catching a handful of fish and you're scratching your head as to where they went. Um, typically those fish are seeking out that water that's got that lower salinity in it. Um, so they'll start to creep their way up into those areas. Uh, this time of year. Um, as far as tides go, though, in general, um, that's really a water temperature thing. So if you're fishing closer to the inlets this time of year, that incoming tide, it's going to be a cold tide. I wouldn't recommend that. That falling tide closer to the inlets, that water can be 10 to 15 degrees warmer in the same spot. Um, so usually that lower tide and that falling tide is going to be the tide to fish those areas. Um, if you go further and further into the backwater, that water temperature is not always a relevant thing. So timing the tides really doesn't play as a huge part of it. Um, one of the big questions I get asked a lot is what tide is better? A very general question, but what tide do you like to fish better? Um, my answer to that is the fish live in the water and they don't leave because the tide's low or high. So as long as you know that, you just need to understand where they go and how they relate to each tide. And then from there, you'll be able to hit them whether it's low tide or high tide. Totally understand that one. So I guess to guess for the, the beginners, the best thing to do is go out there, 
fish both tides, fish all the tides, and just slowly learn where the fish are at certain tides. Like like you're saying, fish are always there. They're not going anywhere. They just move to different areas during different tides. Exactly. Okay. Cool. Uh, we know you're a super big, you know, uh, striper conservatist, and you like everything being done right especially handling fish and releasing fish. Could you kind of just give an idea of, you know, for the new anglers, what's the best way to handle these fish safely and the best way to release them? Well, for one, don't pull them out of the water if you don't have to. Um, Meaning, you know, if you're going to boat them, don't scoop them in a net, let them smash around the deck of your boat, bash into the sides of the boat, you name it, and then expect to release them. All right. Um, You know, it's important if you want to take that photo, have the camera ready or get them on a boga grip next to the boat or have somebody holding them in the water next to the boat the whole time. Once the camera's ready, pull them out, hold your breath while you're taking the photo. And if you start to gasp for air, he's probably more than gasping for water at that point in time. And then make sure you put him right back in the water again. Let him sit in the water for a little while, spend a little time with him. When he feels like he's ready, then send him on his way. If he doesn't, he's acting a little tired, sit there with him. Don't just send him on his way and try to force him back out because he'll end up going belly up. Um, also, when you do pull him in, never hold him up vertically. Um, if you're going to use a boger grip or anything like that, try not to hang him on it for too long. Only do that if you have to just to just to hold the fish or get a quick weight. Um, if you do pull them up with the boga grip and let's say you have to unhook them or something or or deal with them slightly out of the water like that, try to rest them on the gunnel of the boat best you can. Um, That way you're supporting at least some of his body weight and you're not just hanging him by his jaw. When you do hold him up for a photo, put your hand under his belly and try to support those internal organs. Um, That's really important with these fish, especially the larger fish, because you got to remember that the gravity in the water the weight of the gravity in the water that is is a lot different than it is in the air and these fish they're not adapted or evolved to survive out of the water so that's putting a lot of load on their internal organs if you're holding them up for too long out of the water all right well that's some great advice out there guys just make sure you listen to captain you know safely handle them keep them in the water as much as possible don't don't let them hang on the boat grips too long get everything set up before you take that photo you can't get any better advice than that. Um, now, as for fly fishing, I've just gotten into it in the past year or two, and I'm, I'm still supposed to be trying to schedule a trip with you for fly fishing only for the back. There's something more I want to learn. Um, just f- some advice for the novice that's just wanting getting into it, you know, maybe just a, a, a simple setup type of lines that they should be getting, you know, because since you're fishing, it could be floating lines, sinking line, intermediate, you know, different grains, just something for like the beginner, just getting into the sport. Just your basic all around eight or a nine weight setup. Um, Usually an intermediate line is a good all arounder. Um, And then from there, as far as flies go, just get a couple deceivers and maybe a couple clousers. If you got to get something down a little deeper, something with some weighted eyes on it. And I'd say that would be a good starting point for them. Um, I think one of the, one of the keys to this is it's very helpful if you learn and understand the fish first and where they're going to be, if you're going to go out on your own and do this, um, because the handicap created by fly fishing in saltwater is definitely 
it definitely makes things a little more difficult out there. So if you kind of understand the movements of these fish and you know that they'll hold in this spot on this tide, or, you know, they like it along this bank or the way the water moves around this point and things like that. Um, if you were to just walk out there, you already have that confidence of knowing the fish are holding in that area on that stage of the tide. Um, from there, you'll feel a lot more confident throwing hundred casts out there with the fly rod, assuming your arm doesn't fall off by then, uh, before you tie into that fish, uh, because you'll be casting with confidence, knowing eventually you will tie into that fish in that spot. Um, so I think learning the spots on spinning or conventional tackle is a lot more important than just walking out to any bank and only fly fishing it, never learning the ins and outs of it first, because striper fishing isn't easy to begin with, let alone handicapping it while doing it on the fly rod. Sure. Hey, Brian, real quick. Uh, now we're, we're obviously talking heavy stripers, but have you caught any obscure species on the, on the fly rod while you're out there in the, in the salt? Um, I mean, I'd say probably one of the most interesting, well, maybe it's most interesting uh, as far as uh, range out a couple of years ago, we were getting mahi on the fly rod, two miles off the beach. That is awesome. Now that They man. weren't giants, but they were there. <laughs> That's awesome. I know, uh, I know Qua here, uh, he, he and one of his buddies were getting a uh, toggle on the fly last, last, uh, fall. So. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I'd love to try to get the sheep's head on the fly rod. That's one I haven't cracked the code of yet. Oh, that's, I have a, a that's a tough one, man. Uh, yeah. We, just getting the toggle on the fly was pretty, it was pretty funny, but luckily the water was only like five, eight feet deep. So we can just, just shake it enough that the, the, the crab flies just dropped to the bottom. <laughs> I have a buddy down in uh, the Charleston area that, that actually targets them on the fly, the sheep's head on the fly with like a, a shrimp fly. And he does very well. He'll get like four or five of them a trip in the marshes. He does very well. There's something about our sheep's head that are different. I've yeah. tried it and they're just, they're just difficult with them. It's the mm -hmm. same results in Florida. I've, I've caught them on the fly down in Florida, um, but it's just, it's not the same up here. Something about it. You, you know that there's, dozens of sheep's heads sitting right next to the boat at any given time. Like if you're in one of those spots mm -hmm. uh, and then you'll be sitting out there flipping the fly rod out, nothing, nothing, nothing. You'll pass right through them all, nothing. And then you flip out you know, the offering that they do want to eat, uh, the more conventional offering rather than a fly and they're on it right away. And then the next one's on it right away on the next cast and the next one. And that's happening while you're flipping the fly rod out, your buddy's doing that <coughs> running circles around the boat each time he hooks into a fish on spinning tackle while you're still sitting there trying to flip a fly out wondering why you're not getting a touch Man, that's crazy. <coughs> all right well at this time i just wanted i want to discuss the current standings of the uh the, the striper fishery from your opinion you know the health of it do you think there's a decline how do you feel about the slot size and also um what can we do to help to help preserve the fe the future of these uh this fishery well, the striper fishery right now, it's not in that great a shape. Um, we don't have really any year classes coming up uh, right now to fill in the ranks. Uh, really, we're hanging all our weight right now on rebuilding the stock of this fishery on the 2015 year class. It's almost gotten to the point right now that, that the fish that were born before that, they're not even as relevant to the reproduction of this stock uh, to at least build it back up anymore uh, as we had hoped because unfortunately we lost a lot of those 2011 year class fish which was one of the strongest spawns on record um, 
So as far as, uh, you know, I guess uh, a slot size with them right now, with that said, that we're depending on the 2015 year class, those fish are just coming into that current 28 to 35 standard that, that for the most part, the coast has selected. Um, unfortunately, when they do come into that size class, we're going to start to see what happened to the 2011 year class probably happened to the 2015 fish as well. Um, so we're going to be we're going to be looking at a decline if we don't change things um, or at least put more focus and emphasis on catch and release. Because um, once we lose those 2015 fish, I don't think we're going to see any other good year classes coming up the next few years, at least not as of now. Um, so that, that's going to be a tricky thing there. And unfortunately, that that slot size that we're currently sitting in um, about going back about a year and a half ago now, that was voted down by the majority of anglers on the coast in favor of a 35 and over fish. The only reason most anglers favored that 35 and over fish was falling back again on to the relevance of those larger breeders and, and them not really being as relevant to rebuilding the current stock as the 2015 year class is, just based on a numbers game. There's significantly more 2015 year class fish right now swimming around than there is fish that were born prior to that, uh, as far as larger fish goes. So what they did is they went and put the slot in place anyway. I want to say the numbers fell somewhere around 70, roughly 70% of the coast was in favor of that 35 and over regulation. And roughly, you know, somewhere in the teens percentage wise was in favor of this current slot. And then there was like a you know, small percentage or two that were in favor of these other regulations that we had a chance to vote on a couple of years ago at some of the ASMC open comment meetings. Um, but they shot that down and kind of put us in this place now where we have to worry whether or not we're going to see over harvest of that 2015 year class, um, which wouldn't be too good right now with the state of things. Um, and we've already seen what happened to the 2011 year class um, going back to roughly around 2016. Um, what kind of set us up to today's position and problems with the fishery was uh, in part to states like Maryland who went a little over 200% over their quota for that year. And that essentially wiped out that 2011 year class because those fish fell in that size range around that time frame. Um, and that sort of put us in this place. That's why it's really important, I'd say, as far as what we could do to help at this point, is even though we're past the open comment period from the ASMFC, um, they closed that up, I believe it was on the 9th, it was like last Friday. So if, if none of you guys got out to speak at those meetings or got out to send those emails in, um, sort of that ship has sailed. Um, but I think we can still put the pressure on by sending emails out. I think at this point, we have to sort of navigate around the ASMFC and, and sort of go over their heads and put the pressure on with our regional politicians, get those emails out to our congressmen, our senators, make them aware of these situations that are happening and try to get, you know, at least try to do what we can um, to build them that way, or at least encourage a restructuring of the way the striped bass are managed um, through the higher ups like that, to hopefully try to give us a better management plan uh, moving forward to as far as, uh, you know, who manages striped bass and, and how they're held accountable. 
Because right now, a great example of that was that, that little uh, hiccup uh, that happened a few years ago with that 200, 200% overage. Um, there is no accountability. So if any state goes over their quota, um, and or even if any mistakes made at the federal level, there is no way right now for them to hold those management bodies accountable in any way. Um, the way other species are managed, if there is any kind of hiccup there, they can come back and, uh, you know, from a, a, a political level, they can come back and, and sue them, sue that organization um, to hold them accountable for any problems. And right now, that's not the case with striped bass. So basically, they can do virtually anything they want to that species, and nobody is held accountable for it. The only people that basically get screwed out of it all is us as the recreational angler, and also some of the commercial guys, too. I mean, a great example of that is look at states like Massachusetts. They could not meet their commercial quota, I believe it was the last couple of years. Um, and you know, that says something that says there's a problem in the fishery when they're allowed so many pounds of fish and they can't even reach that quota. Um, and a lot of people like to place the blame on the commercial sector on what's happening with the striped bass. But based on the numbers that are out there, they're only about 10 percent of this current issue. Ninety percent of this issue falls on the shoulders of the recreational angler. Um, so I think it's, it's up to us if we're going to spend 10 hours a session out there fishing all night losing sleep over it, uh, maybe doing that three or four nights a week, maybe consider spending one night, spending two or three hours out of that night that week, sending out those emails, putting that pressure on to the people uh, that matter, that make some of the decisions, the heavier, heavier weights, so to speak, uh, you know, in Senate and Congress to tell them to put the pressure back down on places like the ASMFC and hold them accountable um, for some of these mistakes. Otherwise, we're going to be repeating a lot of the things we've seen in the past um, with empty towns in southern New Jersey that were created by the collapse of the weak fish fishery. I mean, we're always already seeing that if you look over in, along the Delaware Bay Shores uh, and then along uh, Cape May and places like that. Those towns used to be bustling. And now you don't hardly see anybody coming into town. Nobody's really trailering their boats down to Cape May to fish the spring run anymore. If you rewinded 15 years ago to this calendar date, you'd see 100, 200 boats out there, lines at the boat ramp, lines at the Wawa, things like that. You just don't see that anymore. Um, so I, I think it's huge that we need to get some emails out to the higher up politicians, make them aware that basically the wheels of commerce are coming to a halt, at least in this area. Obviously, it's happening up and down the coast. I can really only speak for my region um, on that end of things. Um, but explain to them that the wheels of commerce have come to a halt due to many years of mismanagement of the striped bass. Uh, and hopefully we can convince the management bodies to do better and rebuild this fishery. Brian, do you see any anticipation that we're, uh, we're heading towards another moratorium? We're not quite there yet on paper, um, but one thing to keep in mind, uh, the latest stock assessment, I believe it, it dead ended or, or hit its, its stopping point as far as what, uh, what numbers of fish they projected on paper, so to speak. I believe it was 2017 or 2018. So we're still working off old numbers. And right. those numbers showed us sitting right around the early 90s um, as far as our, uh, our SSB or uh, spawning stock biomass. So if you basically, you know, kept moving that line the way it was going, 
that roughly puts us now, again, this is just a, an estimate based on what the, it looks like on the piece of paper with how the squiggly line's moving across it. Um, if you look at that, it puts us around 1988 right now, which is you know, falls right about where we were coming out of that moratorium previously. Right. Um, so I think we're close. Uh, while I don't think a moratorium is the answer at this point, um, I think we're almost close out of necessity to just having to make a drastic move. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a moratorium, but it means it's a bigger move than they're currently proposing, which they're still sitting in a room talking about two years later after striped bass have been, been deemed overfished for about two years. Right. They're still sitting in that room talking about it instead of acting on it. And a lot of that falls back to management structure. Bluefish was deemed overfished back in the fall. And immediately management triggers kicked in through the Magnuson Stevens Act that caused the bluefish to have to do a course correct. So they immediately had meetings, immediately started proposing stuff. And then a few months later, all of a sudden, all the states are putting stuff out that's sort of going to trend the bluefish, hopefully in a bigger direction. Striped bass are not doing that right now. Um, the ASMFC, uh, um, the people uh, that are handling things at those meetings, Instead, they spent three hours talking about the tube and worm in regards to circle hooks. I listened in on that meeting, three hours talking about tube and worm technique. That's to me is a huge waste of time on things. There was guys at that meeting that were on the management body that didn't understand what snagging and dropping was. And yet they were sitting on that, that management body um, making these decisions. You got to remember a lot of these people sitting on that management body, they're political appointees. So they were put there by the governors, put there by other politicians, not necessarily because they have any stake in this fishery, but just because they were placed there for political purposes. To me, that's no way to actually manage a fishery. You need boots on the ground. You need people that have a stake in this and actually care about it. And we, for the most part, we're not seeing that uh, at the ASMFC at this point in time. There's a few good guys in there, don't get me wrong. Um, but generally speaking, when you listen on these meetings, some of these things, you're just scratching your head like, what is going on here, guys? Let's fix this striper and not sit here and just talk about the tube and worm all day. Or talk about how are the tackle shops going to clear out all their J-hook stock and while we you know, give them an extra year instead of putting immediate circle hook actions in the place. None of that makes any sense for the future of striped bass. It seems like they just need to get more, more people that's actually, like you said, got their foot in the door or, you know, they are in there and they know what they're doing. Like maybe more fishermen, you know, get into the board. You no, know? of course. Um, a big part of it too, is just management triggers and the requirement. This falls back on the lack of accountability. They can't be held accountable for any any issues with the fishery and because of that they don't really have to move nobody's sitting there lighting a match under their ass so they can just sit there all day and, and work and do crazy things like even though the asmfc for the most part is required to build a stock i believe it's within 10 years the soonest they could propose a rebuild plan for striped bass based on that i could be a little off on this number but it's about a 17 percent or 18 percent um, reduction is what they proposed with these late in, latest management uh, uh, moves they made about a year ago. Um, well, they're not achieving that. And uh, the numbers came out and they're definitely not achieving that reduction. So 
what they had on paper with that reduction was coming in around 13 years. So now we're looking at possibly 15 years or more. And that's once they actually kick in the correct regulations to actually meet that 17% or 18% reduction they're proposing. So realistically, the way it sits right now, we may not see a somewhat abundant striper fishery for another 25 years at this rate, if they're going to still keep managing things and sitting on them and having meetings about them instead of making more quick, drastic moves. Um, a great way to look at some of that framework was, you know, locally is the bluefish. Like I said, they kicked in management triggers. Sure, they're still talking about some things, um, but they immediately tried to course correct it. And they're just not doing that with striped bass. They're just sitting too long on it and they're still just talking about it. And uh, I'm pretty sure they'll they'll just sit like that until eventually the species goes away and then they don't have to worry about it. That's almost what it feels like. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Make sure you guys, any, any of those meetings, if you guys can make it to, please make sure you do. They want to hear your voices, send emails to your senators, your higher ups, you know, try to help the fishery as much as possible. And us as recreational fishermen are pretty much a majority of the people that can help. So just chime in, send those emails, visit those meetings. I've attended a couple of those Zoom meetings. You know, if anything, you know, follow Captain Brian online. He he usually posts up where the links are to get into these meetings. Even if you just sit there and you don't want to voice it, just sit there. Just let the states and these representatives know that we have we we are here and we're sitting and we're listening. That's all we really need to do. Support this as That's much as we can. That's important, guys. Get that get them emails out explain to your politicians and uh, your local politicians or your federal politicians, explain to them the value of managing for abundance rather than yield, because that's what's put us in this place with many species is we're managing for how many can we remove from the water? How many can we harvest? Not managing for abundance, meaning, well, how many can we leave in the water? So we can continue to have this fishery and not constantly playing up and down with it as it declines. Um, you know, it's really important. I can't say enough. Get those emails out. Even have meetings with those politicians um, if you can and, and just have that discussion that you value being able to go out there and catch a lot more fish than just to go out there and only catch one and be able to take that one you caught home. That's really just not the future with the way things are going anymore. Um, you know, more people are valuing catch and release. Um, and that's why I think going back to that question about the moratorium, I don't think we have to go to a moratorium anymore. I think if we transition things to a catch and release fishery for a period of time, then I think we'd be looking at a better place for the striper fishery. Um, because I believe that a lot of those numbers that you're hearing, uh, they're, they're older numbers that they're basing this mortality on, this catch and release mortality. Um, I believe they're keeping the number around 9% right now, roughly is where it's holding at. And you and I know from fishing and catching these striper, especially using the techniques we're using, it's a lot lower than 9%. Um, I think that you see a lot of that number skewed um, when you start getting into the freshwater fishery forum up the rivers, um, because especially in the Chesapeake and places like that, it, it's basically almost 100% mortality when you catch a striper in zero salinity water that you caught trolling with 300 something feet of line out in water that's over 80 degrees, that's basically a death sentence for that fish. Mm. Um, so I think that a lot of that falls onto the shoulders of the anglers and just using responsible angling practices. 
you know, making sure you're reviving these fish, crushing the barbs on your trebles when you can. I can tell you, you won't lose any fish if you're fishing treble hooks on a surface lure if the barbs are crushed. That fish is just going to release healthier. If you're fishing subsurface lures, even let's just say any kind of stick bait or anything like a mirror lure, Yozuri lip swimmer, anything like that, put single hooks on if you can. Change it to those inline singles, find the right ones that size up to it correctly, um, and you'll be releasing a lot healthier fish. Um, and if you're fishing bait, of course, now we're mandated for circle hooks. So make sure you're using a circle hook when you're out there. So keep that in mind as well. Now, as a, as a charter captain yourself and with commercials, you know, work and stuff like that, do you think a catch and release kind of system statewide or even coastwide, would it, would it affect your business? Do you think? Uh, well, Cause I, I know, I know strictly your, your catch and release charter. And I, any guess on my boat is a, is a strictly catch and release also. And Dan is a strict catch and release kind of guy. So like, like, do you think it would affect, say, these say the head boats, head boats, party boats, um, six pack, you know, uh, charter boats and stuff. Do you think, do you think that would affect their business? Or do you think that like a lot of like recreational fishermen will still be like, okay with it, just going out, having a fun day of catching fish instead of worrying about going out for the day and, and bringing fish home? Temporarily, yes. Now, by temporarily, I mean very short term. I mean, once you change the mindset of that angling community that would have went on those trips, um, that, you know, that general sec that, that booked the headboat or, or booked and was used to going on those charters and just doing nothing but killing fish, once you can transition their mindset over, then they're going to realize they have just as much fun just going out there and releasing them all day. And really, you know, if they, if they wanted fish that bad, you know, go change species and maybe just take home a tog or something later that day on your way in, mm -hmm. you know, uh, they'll realize that. And I think once you can change that mindset uh, of those anglers that were so used to killing everything when they go on the trips, then I think there wouldn't be a problem with that. I, I think if anything, knowing that everybody would go out and catch a lot more fish would draw in more charters and more bookings. But a lot of that weight falls to the mindset of some of those captains you know, they're, they're still telling people there isn't a problem with the striped bass fishery. Oh, they're fine. I saw so many fish, you know, wherever the other day, or, oh, look, look how many fish. And they say, there's a problem. They'll crack a joke like that. Like, look, the fish are hitting the sides of our boat right now as they're sitting in a, a blitz somewhere, the one and only blitz and the one and only group of fish that in the entire tri-state area that happens to be next to their boat, uh, as opposed to when we used to see a span of a migratory body of striped bass that was multiple states wide. Now it's like a county wide for the most part. Yep. Um, but they'll only fish that short window and they'll just tell everybody there's no problem. So a big part of that comes back to education and, and getting some of these captains to respect this fishery. I totally, totally agree with everything you just said, Captain. I just captain's got to teach, you know, every charter captain's head both. All we have to do is just educate educate these people that come out that's all it is it's, it's educating them letting them know why and why we're trying to preserve the fisheries you know what i mean but uh, i agree let's let's look at something let's let's try to change the name from captain let's just start calling all of them educators okay let's there try we go. that let's see how that goes right <laughs> that there might, that actually puts might that work. mindset that puts a little more responsibility on their shoulders hey maybe i should think about educating my clients more instead of just telling them to get the lines in get them up get them down Oh, you got a fish on the side. Let's gaff him. Oh, let's measure him now. Oh, he's only 20 inches. Oh, okay. Well, let's release him, even though we just stuck a gaff in his head. 
I can't believe I, I I'm gonna tell you I've seen that plenty of times too. Gaffing no, fish that aren't the right size and just releasing it. Just I'm just like why? Or 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 trolling for them, gaffing and, them, and then keeping them outside of three miles. You're 15 mm, miles out. I've yeah. seen that as well. Yeah. <laughs> hey, we're not gonna get into that stuff. We we've seen plenty of stuff while we're out there. So um all right. All right, so, so we got all the helpful information. Let's get into the fun stuff. Um, let's talk about Captain Brian as the fisherman. Like, do you get out on your own for fun fishing? What are your favorite species to target? Do you have a bucket list fish that have you not caught yet? Um, I'd say, I mean, I'm pretty much out on all my spare time. So whenever okay. I get free time, I'm usually fishing. I mean, right now, as we speak, I'm sitting here along the bank. I might not have a rod in my hand. Um, but I'm sitting out here overlooking the water. I mean, I'll spin the, the zoom around so you guys can at least see where I'm at here. Um, and you know, even if I don't have a rod in my hand, I'm always fishing because my eyes are always on the water watching things, you know, I'm watching mm -hmm. a few turns dive off in the distance. I've seen a couple osprey diving here. So that's telling me there's something around. Do I need to go out there and hook them necessarily? Not really. As long as I know they're there, I'm content with it. Um, but most of my spare time, yeah, I'm usually on the water, wet in a line somewhere. Um, you know, as far as uh, favorite species, um, for the most part, whatever's chewing. So if I'm doing a lot of something at that time of year, usually just changing it up a little and doing something different. I have the most fun doing that. So if I've been doing a lot of, let's say, a lot of flounder fishing or something, then I'm, I'm more than ecstatic in my spare time to go out and throw a plug for some striper. Um, or let's say if I, uh, you know, have a little spare time and I know something might be lining up right and I heard there's some cobia off the beach, I'll go zip out there and try to take advantage of something like that. Um, you know, otherwise it's just following patterns, really, regardless of the species. Um, it's, it's that reward um, for, I guess, uh, trying to prove your theory, right. On whether or not they'll be holding somewhere on a particular stage of whatever it may be, a tide, a wind direction, a, a certain moon phase or certain amount of cloud cover versus sun time of day, et cetera. Um, it's more just chasing those patterns, uh, and getting rewarded for that well-placed cast. Um, you know, as far as, uh, a bucket list trip, um, I'd say trying to get over to Seychelles or somewhere like that, to go hit some GTs on the fly rod. Uh, that, it looks that, like a blast. Dude, that's, that, that's, that was literally my bucket list dream trip and fish right there. Seychelles yeah. on a fly rod with GTs. Yeah. Even anywhere else. I mean, I'd, I'd settle for another place, you know, maybe over somewhere like, uh, yeah, along the Great Barrier Reef Forum or, or even Cr some of the other islands. Um, Christmas you know, Island, Christmas like Island or yeah. something like that. Oh yeah. I mean, they get, they get them a lot of other places too. Uh, yeah. but, uh, some of those places are pressured, you know, places like yeah. Hawaii there, there's just, I don't think they're as big and there's just not as many of them because they see the pressure there Yeah, uh, just because there's a little more of a, a human presence. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I would say that would, that would be the trip. Um, other than that, yeah, I mean, the sky's the limit on that one. I mean, where, where do we go from there? I mean, go chasing some peacocks in, in the Amazon, you know, yeah. I, I'd take that. Uh, go chasing some golden dorado down in southern tip of south america sounds yeah. like a blast to yeah. me too rooster um, fishing you know. rooster fish in costa rica oh yeah Shine. yep exactly yep so yep. it really just just depends on the you know time of year and what's happening really you know that just kind of falls back on what i like to do with any kind of fishing you know right. if it's sort of happening just go out and try to have some fun sure. um, last thing on here is uh hey, what are your future plans for bad fish are you guys you getting bigger boats more offshore stuff tuna stuff are you going to get into that category or are you just you're kind of comfortable with what where Batfish is at right now i'm comfortable where i'm at now i picked up a new boat last year so i'm running a 23 cape classic now 
Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a solid boat, uh, gets me, floats me in about 10 to 12 inches of water and still gets me out front. If I wanted to go chase tuna, um, it would put me out there. Uh, at least if I wanted to go chase like the yellowfin in the summer, I'd be able to get out to them if I chose to. Um, but for me trolling, I'm not really into that game. Mm-hmm. So if I hear there's a, a bite to cast to, you know, when those bluefin come in closer in the fall, right. I'll sometimes go out and look for them and, and see what I can do with them. Um, but otherwise I'm content with where I am. I mean, nothing beats catching a, a striper in the shallows or, um, you know, potentially running in one of those redfish from time to time that likes to show face back there, uh, oh. or those big, big gator blues. Um, and I, I miss those guys. It's been yeah, a I few think, years. So. I think, I think we're all missing them. Those, those, those things have been, have saved trips many of times. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we had a heck of a run back, uh, five years ago now, I want to say, uh, 2016. Up on some of the flats. Yeah. yeah, somewhere in there, I want to say um, there was we had these blues just locked in. They were timing it out right when the spearing were coming up to do their spawn in the backwaters. And there was just these massive schools of big blues. We ended up sight fishing one that was about 40 inches and he hit in about a foot of water. I mean, he was it was weird. He had his tail up. I think he was pushing around some crabs or something in the mud. And there was a group of them uh, and then rolled his top water by his face. He was the lead fish out of that group, ended up taking it massive fish for back there i mean he came in all muddy and he was basically puking up mud when we pulled him up um, so i'd love to see those guys come back into there again i mean pound for pound they'll out fush out fight the striper back there um, oh, pound for oh, pound day. if we start seeing those redfish back there obviously that would that would be a whole other thing i mean past um, few years we've been uh seeing some more numbers you know especially up on the beach fronts too oh so. yeah yeah that that mullet run in the falls the ticket with them um you know it seems like I think what it is, is that the, the uh, redfish themselves, since we're sort of at the northern fringes of where they end up at, I think it takes them some time to get up here. So in order to see that saturation of those fish, it's usually on the tail end of summer because it's taken them so many months to get up here until they finally made it. They followed the food. Now they're up here and then they're automatically doing a turnaround again because we're starting to see the break in the weather things are getting colder and they're heading south again. Um, same thing goes with tarpon. Uh, same thing goes with the manatees. That's why the manatees die off when they come up here because they get caught with their pants down and they can't out swim the cold fronts <laughs> and get back south again. Um, but I, I'm really looking forward to those tarpon if they start showing up in numbers. I'm only understanding a little over 100 miles south of here now you can target them. Uh, and we haven't seen that yet up here. Um, but uh, last season I did cite two of them. Uh, like mid-size there somewhere around that 40 pound class wow. uh, i did cite two of them rolling in the backwater uh, so that was neat to see that's pretty uh, amazing and then i did see some stuff on the flats uh, uh little I, I, sometimes you wonder about what your eyes actually saw but i, mm-hmm. I could swear they look they look like little baby tarpon rolling in this one pocket one morning and they wouldn't touch a thing that would be pretty amazing i mean Dan's talked in one of our last pre- previous episodes. He's had friends down there that um, they gill net and they've pulled up snook in Virginia beach, like literally like a few hundred miles away. Not, they're not, they're not that far away. And we've had dead tarpon carcasses roll up on our Jersey shores, stuff like yeah. that. So they're, they're around and with this weather and the way the global warming is happening, I wouldn't be surprised that we see some crazy stuff coming up here. Yeah. Well, touching on that warming trend overall, we're seeing about a 300 mile northward shift in species. Uh, as uh, right now, basically, as we sit, uh, as far as uh, summer goes, um, you know, I'm seeing uh, avian species coming up now. Um, last summer to summer before we had a, a pair of roseate spoonbills, those pink birds, and mm-hmm. we had them come all the way up here. 
Um, you know, we saw a, we now have a small breeding body of white ibis that are coming up and hanging out in Southern New Jersey during the summer. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I thought I was in Florida one morning. I'm, I'm out at the boat kind of getting things ready before my clients. And all of a sudden here's a little, uh, little V chain of, uh, of ibis flying overhead and I'm looking at them, you know, there's a few juveniles, a few adults and I'm looking up, I'm like, what did I just see? Am I in Florida right now? Those are white <laughs> ibis. They ain't the glossy ibis. Uh, so I've seen those flying overhead. Um, I'm sure some of the LBBs, the little bitty birds, um, you're seeing some of them sliding more northward now. Um, I'm hearing the same with plants. Uh, I had a client on the boat mention that last summer to me. Um, you know, I, I guess uh, his wife was a botanist or something. And she mentioned uh, they're seeing plants up here that we didn't see prior. And that would make sense. I mean, if we don't get a big kill off in the winter, some of those plants, they travel up here, mostly through the bird feces, uh, the seeds would, and then uh, they'd replant up here and establish. So I mean, we're seeing a big shift in species like that. And, uh, you know, they're seeing it even more north of us. They're, they're heavily affected by that. I know they like the lobster fishery up in New England and things like that. Um, those guys are scratching their heads now. They don't know what to do because everything they ever were used to, it seems like it's changed now. Well, um, Dan, do you have any, uh, any last questions for, uh, Brian before we, uh, start wrapping things up? Brian, do you ever get into any freshwater fishing? Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, in, uh, winter months when I get some downtime, uh, you know, the times I wasn't spending in Florida, um, uh, I'll go out around here, usually nearby in Southern New Jersey. I'll go to some of the creeks and some of the lakes. Uh, we'll hit some pickerel and some largemouth in the winter. Um, if I get some time, I, I got a buddy of mine. It does a lot of trout fishing up in the hills. So we'll head up there. Uh, if I get some spare time, we'll try to hit some trout on some of the streams and all and, and see what we could do with that as well, which is always a fun time. Uh, something different. You know, it's always nice to see different scenery and do different things when you spend most of your time in the saltwater. For sure. For sure. I, I like to split my time. Now, salt is my true love and uh, the uh, the freshwater is a, a time killer for me most of the time. But there's some great freshwater opportunities in our area. So it's always it's always nice to get a change of pace, in my opinion. That's all I got, Brian. You've been great, man. Super right, thanks. great. Right. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. No problem. Uh, so lastly, um, where can these listeners find you? Social media content uh, websites where, and where are you located and how can someone reach you to book a trip? Uh, if you want to reach me to book a trip, uh, best way is to give me a call or drop me an email. Um, my information can be found on my website. It's ocnjfishing.com. Um, I'm located uh, right across the bridge from ocean city. Well, right on your way into ocean city, I'm right in summer's point there, uh, right along the bay. Um, if you're looking for me on the social media, um, you can find me on Instagram. Uh, my uh, name on there is capped Brian Williams, C-A-P-T, Brian Williams. And uh, on Facebook, if you're looking for me on there, it's Bad Fish Charters OC. Very nice. All right. Any, any last word of wisdom, Captain? Send as many emails as you guys can to your local <laughs> politicians and, and just, just get on them about the value of fish in the water as opposed to dead fish on a dock. Cool. Sure. And all that right. goes for all species across the board. I mean, we've, we've got to do what we can to keep them around for the future. And, and the trends are showing that every species is on a downward decline. It's not just the striped bass. Um, but right now, of course, striped bass is where most of our hearts are. So that's where the focus is. All right. Well, besides that, once again, it was a pleasure having you on with us for this podcast, Captain. Hopefully I'll catch a trip with you uh, this season. 
Um, besides that, me and Dan's going to stay on a couple of uh, extra minutes. We're going to wrap it up. But uh, once again, have a great day. Um, we'll see you soon. Awesome, guys. Thanks, Thanks Brian. Oh, there he goes. Okay. All right. All right. Looks like we wrapped up another awesome episode. This one's very informative, man. There was so much incredible technical information in this in this podcast. There's like the the details, the minor details that this guy's that the Brian just gave us is incredible. Like yeah. there's a lot of very distinct minor things that most of us don't even consider over the course of the day. Exactly. I'm, I'm going to have to go through this and listen to this one more time, maybe two or three more times. Yeah. There was just so much info. I couldn't even like crush it into my head. You know what I mean? It's just like so much going on. And then like you could tell from him that like this fishery and like what it is, it's it, he, he's all about it. it's in his heart. He wants to try everything he can to preserve it. And then sure. you know, that's, that's something that, like he said, as educators, we have to educate everyone out there to try to help as best as possible. For sure. And he just, he just put on a, he just put on a session, man. Like he just, he said, he just took us to school because there was a lot of great information in there. Not only that, he brought a lot of the science into it too, which man, that, that, that's the kind of stuff I love. I love getting the extra information that I don't typically get when I'm, you know, on the Instagram page or on the Facebook page or the tackle shop page. Like that is, that is great. Like the, the, this, the minute details that he gave us is only going to help our, our people who are tuning in and, uh, be able to catch more fish and take better care of those fish after they do. Yeah. That just shows you guys, um, our podcast one day can be just fun chip chat and circle around the tables. And then there's days it's a full on full course class from like a university. You get sit down with somebody like this. It's very technical. It's very deep and you know, it's, it's very informative. Yeah. He was just a, a treasure trove of information. Man. There was, there was just so much there. So I, I want to go back and listen to it again myself. Yep. Sounds like it. All right. Uh, besides that, you have anything else before I start wrapping it up? I do not. Thanks for tuning in everybody. We really appreciate your, uh, your constant, uh, your constant feedback. We appreciate all the, the love so far. It's been great. It's exceeded our expectations. We couldn't thank you enough. We can't do this without all of you. So just please uh, keep liking, sharing and commenting and, uh, and uh, tell us what you want to see next, you know, give us some ideas, what, you know, reach out to us. We, you can reach us at um, tide chasers backslash uh, tide chasers, tide underscore chasers on Instagram. And then it's going to be facebook.com backslash tide chasers podcast, you know, send us a message on one of those platforms and let us know uh, if there's anybody out there that you want us to, to bring on, or if you have any ideas for the show. <laughs> We, we're always looking for new content and we have tons of people lined up. We have tons of people reaching out to us to come on, but there's always a, the, the next person. So we appreciate all of you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So once again, ladies and gentlemen, uh, like share, subscribe our podcast to anyone out there, leave us a great review. Uh, it helps us out with our algorithm. Uh, once again, on the show today was guest captain Brian Williams of Badfish charters stationed out of ocean city, New Jersey. You want to book a trip with him look him up on his social medias his instagrams uh we'll post a bunch of the his bios and links in the descriptions below for you guys to find him if you guys can't reach him just make sure you guys reach out to us we'll make sure you stay in good contact with him so you'll be able to book that awesome trip um besides that once again like my co-host dan said look us up on facebook at tide chasers podcast and also on instagram at 
tide underscore chasers uh just check, keep all those two social media platforms it'll keep you updated on the next guest that we have coming up in the next few months uh once again thank you for tuning in and listen to us ladies and gentlemen and have a great night thanks everybody all right have a great night bye you too